Hello and welcome back to Render Unto Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. I'm your host, Josh Campbell. Render Unto Caesar seeks to explore the connection between religion and the public sphere. The title comes from one of the more well-known events in Jesus' life when he gets asked if a devout Jew should pay taxes to Rome. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. In the last episode, I talked with Elaine Enns and Ched Myers about their newest book, Healing Haunted Histories, A Settler Discipleship of Decolonization. At the end of the show, I talked about the concept of reparations and how it is pivotal in any conversation about reconciliation. I learned so much from this episode, and I encourage you to take a listen before hopping into this next episode. In this episode, I talk with Shawnee Lenape scholar of law and author Stephen Newcomb. In 2008, Newcomb wrote his landmark book, Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. In this episode, I talk with Newcomb about the doctrine and the connections that it has to the unmarked graves being found on residential school sites today. Stephen Newcomb is co-founder and director of the Indigenous Law Institute. For some four decades, he's been studying and writing about U.S. federal Indian law and policy. His work focuses on the ecological and spiritual wisdom of original nations and peoples, and on the patterns of domination and dehumanization used for centuries against indigenous nations and peoples on the basis of the Vatican Papal Bulls from the 15th century. Newcomb published many of his findings in his 2008 book, Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and he is a co-producer of a documentary movie entitled The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. This episode that you're about to listen to helps to continue unpack the dark underbelly of the North American colonial project and the culpability of the church and Christianity within that. Thanks for listening. So what I was curious about is, you know, the last couple times we've talked, we talked about the... Uh, of course, the the news right now about the uh, the unmarked graves that are being found on residential school sites here in Canada, and I know it's been making international news as well. And I know uh, what I'm curious about, Stephen, is is um, what is the connection you see, the line you draw between that and uh, this doctrine of discovery and. And I, and within that, maybe you could, ex, you know, give a brief explanation of the doctrine of discovery for the listener. But then I want you to kind of draw that connection that you, we've talked about a bit before. Well, I think before I go there, I want to set up the context for this conversation. Sure. And as, as I see it, the context is the original free existence of all of the nations and peoples throughout this continent and throughout this hemisphere. And, of course, I mean the continent now known as North America and then the hemisphere known as North, Central, and South America. And all of our nations and peoples were entirely free and independent of any system from Europe or from what was called Western Christendom. Uh, we had our own languages, cultures, spiritual traditions, our, our lands and territories, as they're commonly called in English. The 
knowledge and wisdom systems that, that we had that uh, we based upon our uh, our or were an outgrowth of our origin stories and creation stories and um, which which have embedded within them teachings teachings for how to interact with one another and other life forms <clears throat> and each of our territories each of our uh, homelands but we might use that term but where we existed on earth on mother earth was a paradise we had everything that we possibly could need and we didn't abuse that so we had an existence for thousands and thousands of years or uh, traditionally speaking extending back to the beginning of time and then the contrast between that original free existence and a system of domination that was brought by ship across the ocean from Western Europe by representatives of various monarchs or monarchies or uh, of the, the Catholic Church. And I say systems of domination because that's what the historical record shows. Uh, in terms of their documentation, the documents that they carried with them or certainly had as a basis for their voyages across the ocean. And those documents uh, said to go and search for, seek out, discover, and find, or search for those places where their form of domination did not yet exist. And so they were declarations of war against non-Christian nations and peoples wherever they might be located. And so they did that. They sailed and uh, located lands, uh, coastlines, and then performed ceremonies and rituals. And these rituals and ceremonies were based on certain kinds of uh, superstition, superstitions on their part believing that if they simply said the right words or piled up the right number of stones or tore up some grass or waved a sword in the air or whatever it might be and then had a uh, person there called a notary republic, a notary public, um, that they would officially seal some document or place a seal on a document and filed that document. And then because of that, supposedly all of those lands that they had located belonged to them and they had the right to claim a right of domination over everyone and everything based upon the ritual that they performed. But behind all of that is this idea in the Bible and the old Testament that a certain chosen people, that is a people chosen by a particular God or deity is given a divine sanction or divine permission to go and establish themselves on top of other nations or peoples or to eliminate those other nations and peoples and take all of the lands and uh, what they call resources, all of the means of obtaining riches and wealth to take those. And, and so we can go into some of the language from those specific documents that explain the pattern, but the most basic one is from a papal document issued by Pope Nicholas V 
to King Alfonso of Portugal in 1452, and it lays out the pattern very clearly that the voyagers from Portugal, in that case, um, the, the King of Portugal, King Alfonso V, is to go to the western coast of Africa or to any non-Christian lands and to, quote, invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue the people existing there to reduce them to perpetual slavery and to take away all their possessions and property. And that means take everything from them. So when you look at those graves and the children's uh, human remains, the human remains of all those children, I believe it's more than 1,500 now that were found in unmarked graves up there, uh, or the other remains that are in marked graves, um, gra grave sites. Um, but all the children that died in the residential schools and, by the way, in the boarding schools in the, in the United States, uh, those are all outgrowths or consequences of those documents that said to go forth and to establish domination wherever it does not exist. And the way in which you establish domination is by dehumanizing others and by abusing them, tormenting them. Uh, and so the torture and suffering that those children went through in those so-called residential schools, I say so-called because they're, they're not just schools, they were indoctrination centers, genocidal institutions designed to destroy the languages, cultures, and spiritual traditions of our nations and peoples, when we look at those human remains of those children, that's evidence of the outcome of those documents that were issued by various popes at the Vatican and in Rome. So when, I mean, sometimes uh, you know, someone might say, well, you know, these documents, these, these, uh, Papal bulls that you're referencing, I mean, these are from the 1500s. Um, how can you draw those connections up to this day? Like, were, were they, are they not just things of the past? How, how do they, how did they impact some of these events uh, of colonization? You know, what's the, what's the link there in terms of, well, you know, that like asking what what's the link between the Bible uh, and Christians of today? Hmm. In other words, how old is the Bible? How old how old is the information in the Bible? Hmm. But yet, people of today still embrace that and still still um, profess to believe in that or do believe in it or whatever. But uh, just because a document is old in terms of chronology has has no bearing on whether it is being used today. So you could look at that in either direction and say, well, it has no bearing or it does have a bearing. So then we have to look for the evidence of whether those old documents are being used by political systems such as Canada and the United States. And of course they, they are, we have the documentation on that. And the people that are uninformed and have never studied this kind of information, have never delved into these documents or into the books where they're located and published, would perhaps have that kind of question. But in actuality, 
those documents that I'm referencing are the basis for the entire uh, phenomenon called Western civilization. In other words, those were plans for world domination laid out in great detail and issued in, for example, 1452, 1454, 1455, 1456, 
so so does the United States uh, have states of domination. It's comprised of various states of domination with names like, uh, you know, California, Washington, Oregon, uh, and so forth and so on. But the, the, the type of institution that a state is, it's an institution of domination. And, and most people don't realize that. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I want to reference a couple times the, this, uh, uh, Canadian Catholic bishops, uh, response to the doctrine of discovery. Um, so they talk about here, well, the, the, the title of the document is, uh, doc, the doctrine of discovery in Terra Nellius, uh, a Catholic response. So at one point here, they say, uh, you know, the, the charter given by Henry the seventh to John Cabot shortly after intercateria, the kingdom of England granted letters. And basically what they say here is this, this, um, this charter made frequent references to the goods and profits, which could be reaped, but made no mention of Christ or Christianity whatsoever. While England was at this time a Catholic nation, the charter contains no justification, theological or otherwise, for the seizure of lands, save for the will of Henry VII. So you can tell here that these documents, it's, I mean, they seem to be trying to absolve the Catholic Church of, I don't know if that's the right technical term, of responsibility. Um, I don't know how you how you see that when when you hear something or you read that statement you know it's all it's almost like are are they is that accurate or are they just trying to shift uh responsibility well, to the state instead of the church you know well there's a really wonderful uh book by a haitian author and I'm going to forget his name, but um, in any case, the uh, book is called Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History, but Michel Rolf Truyot, mm-hmm. and the, the, what he's referring to there is the way in which those with power misframe or frame historical events in a manner that's self-serving to them. And yeah, they can say that there's no reference to, uh, what I don't know if they said no reference to Christianity or some justification. These people that are writing about that sort of thing are not experts in the subject. So right off the bat, what does that document say? It says that the Cabots are authorized to seek out discover and find whatsoever isles, countries, regions, and provinces of the heathens and infidels that before this time have been unknown to all Christian people. Well, heathen is a word of Christian origin. Infidel is uh, someone not of the faith, or infidels are those not of the faith. And Christian people uh, obviously references Christianity and the Bible because Christianity is based on the Bible. The word heathen is a word of Christian origin, quote-unquote, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. The the papal bull of May, well, the papal bulls, there are four of them from 1493, 
were issued only three years prior to the John Cabot Charter issued by Henry VII of England. So uh, why was he issuing that? Because he didn't want to miss out on all of the riches and wealth that might possibly be obtained by such voyages. And Mm -hmm. then what does it say in the Latin? We have to go to the Latin version of that John Cabot Charter. And there are a couple of very important terms, one being jurisdiction in Latin, jurisdictionum, and the other one is titulum dominium, which is a domination title. So the Cabots are told that they're to not only just go and locate those lands, but to obtain for the king a claim of jurisdiction and a claim of domination title. So the the uh, bishops are playing fast and loose with the historical record, trying to deflect attention away from the true nature of what I'm talking about. And by the way, I'm not even supposed to be here. In other words, if their plans for the genocide against our nations and peoples had worked, then there would be no people that are able to go back through the historical record and examine it and come up with this kind of detail. But we, you know, those of us that have dedicated our lives to this kind of work do exist, and we do have the documentation. And I invite anyone who wants to differ with me or may have some other viewpoint or other types of information that contradicts what I'm saying to come forth and provide that to me. I I welcome that. But unless they can make these documents go away and the information that I'm talking about go away, uh, then I'd say that we're on very solid ground in terms of the historical evidence and the historical record. Yeah. Um, one thing I was wondering, Stephen, I'm on this uh, I'm on this Facebook group. It's called Catholics for Truth and Reconciliation. Um, that in response to you know these unmarked graves, and I I posted I posted some stuff about the doctrine of discovery, and I posted your work, and um, so one person just wrote a comment here. Um, I've read that the doctrine of discovery was reputed repudiated by the church centuries ago. Um, but I haven't been able to find out exactly when or why. I'd like to know more about it. Can you speak to that statement? Uh, I mean, just the overall is, is there, is, are they accurate? And then I want to kind of get into the term repudiate as well. Well, yeah, I mean, let's, but let me, let me, uh, before I get into that, uh, just give me a few seconds to remind everyone that might be listening to this that we're still talking about the human remains of all those children Mm -hmm. and all of the children that died at all the residential schools and all the boarding schools in the United States. And the effort on the part of the Canadian state and the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, by the way, received millions and millions of dollars to run genocidal institutions in an effort to destroy the languages, cultures, and spiritual traditions of our uh, of our peoples, of our nations, and that that's that's what we're still talking about here. Hmm. Now, the doctrine of discovery is mis- misnamed uh, in one sense. Yeah, it's a doctrine of discovery, but it's discovery for the purpose of domination. We have to understand that just because the term discovery is being used what is a discovery it's a new form of knowledge Mm. 
if you you're adding to human knowledge or the knowledge of of a particular people by adding some new insight or understanding. So in this case, we're ta- talking about geographical places on the earth that are not known, not yet known, as the as the document I already quoted says, then unknown to Christian people. Well, once it's known, once that geographical location is known, then that's called a discovery. But a discovery for what purpose? And then you have to look at the documents and identify the intentions and the purpose and the goal or goals that are stated in those documents. And there and the purpose, which I've already stated, is domination. Just that's bottom line, that's what it is all about. So the um, the doctrine of discovery is misnamed. It's actually the doctrine of domination. And we were misserved. We kind of uh, early on when when people like myself learned about this, we learned about it uh, by the phrase, the doctrine of discovery. And the John Marshall uh, ruling, Johnson versus McIntosh, the one that he drafted, he wrote that decision. He uses the term, the right of discovery. So what gave them the right to discover? Well, it, it was just because they wanted to go and locate other areas of the earth for uh, the resources that were there or to establish their system of domination on top of those places. And he lays that out very clearly. <clears throat> Pardon me. And he refers to that as ultimate dominion in that decision. And the Johnson versus McIntosh decision, by the way, is very important because it's also used by the the court system of Canada. And so that there's that connection we have to keep in mind, that this mm-hmm. is not just a decision from the U.S. Uh, court system. Hello folks and thank you for listening to Render Unto Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. I'm your host, Josh Campbell. In today's show I'm talking with Indigenous Scholar of Law Stephen Newcomb. Stephen is discussing the connection between the thousands of unmarked graves found at residential school sites across Canada and a series of papal documents from the 15th century. Stay with us as Stephen continues to explain how current systems of political domination found their original legitimacy in these papal documents. Thanks for listening. So, going back to this question about the quote-unquote doctrine of discovery being repudiated, it's a misframing of the information and of the issue, meaning um, it's the specific documents that we always talked about we said we were calling on the Pope, Pope John Paul II at that time, to formally revoke the papal bull of May 4th, 1493, as representative of all the various papal documents. So the idea was to have a revocation, meaning a formal uh, statement on the part of the papacy or on the part of the Pope that he was uh, revoking or rescinding, uh, overturning, that particular document and um, so there's that potential still existing uh, that he might do that that the current 
Pope Francis might do that. Hmm. But there's a lot of pushback. But, you know, there there is a document from 1537 titled Bo Sublimus Deus. And um, uh, what it's saying is that the Indians should be treated as, uh, regarded as human beings. They should not be uh, abused. They should not be, their property should not be taken from them. They should not be enslaved. And what a lot of Vatican officials have done uh, at the very highest level, they have misunderstood and misinterpreted the significance of that one document while ignoring entirely the information that I've already stated with regard to the content of all those other documents prior to 1537, the uh, devastation and death and misery and suffering as a consequence of the words that the popes wrote down and unleashed on the planet, which are the words and, and ideas of domination, invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue, reduce to perpetual slavery, take away all the possessions and property, establish domination, Christian domination where it does not yet exist, and so forth and so on, and believing somehow that all of the I mean, the uh, decades of that kind of behavior was suddenly reversed and canceled out. All that death and suffering and misery was suddenly reversed and canceled out by this one papal document from 1537. It doesn't even make sense. And they have never publicly acknowledged the language, never publicly acknowledge the actual language that the popes unleashed on the planet that I just referenced. Hmm. So the the Vatican, as far as I'm concerned, is very skilled and deft at uh, sidestepping the issue, avoiding the full magnitude of what we're talking about here. And it's understandable that they would do that because, you know, we're talking about massive amounts of the planet that have been um, brought into the possession of the Catholic Church and the British Crown and other institutions to the detriment and destruction of our original nations and peoples, uh, otherwise known as indigenous nations and peoples. So I guess what I'm saying is a long-winded way of saying that there's much more to this than the average person can even begin to understand unless they spend a lot of time with the information and that includes the bishops of the Catholic Church. Uh, if they ha and if they have read this information and they've not disclosed it, then why is that? Hmm. So it's the it's the silencing of uh, the true destructive, dehumanizing, dominating nature of their system that they're silencing by pretending that it doesn't exist. Mm. and trying to deflect attention to other kinds of less important points, in my view. Mm. Um, and mm. it's, it's, it's understandable that they would do that because it, it has tremendous implications uh, regarding the true nature of the Catholic Church and what I call the, the theology of domination. Mm. The theology of domination. You know, most most Catholic people, the everyday Catholic person 
Um, and it's not none of my business what people believe. If they want to believe in any kind of religion, that's entirely up to them. I'm not going to contradict that. They make their own decisions with regard to their spiritual life. I'm talking about the historical record and what's revealed in these documents. And then people have to draw their own conclusions with regard to that. Mm-hmm. And and so as an example, there's a very bizarre, and I find to be incredible, sentence in one of the papal bulls which says, we trust, or actually the Latin word is confidentes, we have confidence in him, trust in him, capital H on him, so that's referring to the deity of the uh, papacy, from whom empires and dominations and all good things proceed. So as I asked one Vatican ambassador at the UN some years ago, I started reading that sent or reiterating that sentence from memory, and when I said him, he said, that's Jesus Christ your God. So we trust in him, and he interjected and said, that's Jesus Christ your God, and I continued, from whom empires and dominations and all good things proceed. So if the empires and coming, if empires and dominations are coming, are um, um, issuing forth from him, who is Jesus Christ or God, does that mean it's a God of domination? And he didn't stop for one moment. He just immediately said, well, that everything comes from God, the birds and the trees. And what was your name again? Hmm. And uh, so he didn't deny for a moment that the deity being referred to in that papal bowl is, is a deity of domination. And it's evident right there. If you say that empires and dominations are coming out of your deity, and that's the deity you have trust in, what are, what's the full implication of that? What's the magnitude of that in terms of, of what that says about a theology of domination, a deity of domination? And people have not ever come to terms with this information that I'm telling you because most people have not spent any time at all. If you, I asked Archbishop Savannah Tomasi at the uh, Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace at the Vatican back in 2016. I said, with respect, I believe there's much of your own history you don't know. Let me ask you, have you ever actually read the papal bulls? And he said, uh, no, I must confess. And I said, that's all right, that's fine. But I've been reading these documents in Latin and English since 1989, so I think I know a little something about them. Let me let me explain. And so and I went on to, to explain a lot of this kind of information. They're unaware of, this is what I would contend, they're most likely unaware of the true nature of these documents and that what they really uh, mean in terms of their significance. And those children's human remains in those graves are a direct outgrowth and consequence of uh, this kind of thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. That there's a claim of a right, of, that they have a right to claim a right of domination, and mm-hmm. that that right was given to them by their God or their deity. Mm-hmm. Now, the average person in the Catholic Church doesn't think this way, I'm, I'm certain. You know, I, I want to believe that, that they're not believing that. That's not what, what they believe their church to be all about. 
Mm-hmm. But I'm simply saying this is the historical record. It has to be dealt with, and it has not been dealt with. Mm. Um, Stephen, I'm curious, just some of these terms, uh, like this person mentioned, oh, this has been repudiated. And then I heard you use the word revocation. Is there a distinction there in terms of those terms? Um, you know, I also... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. You also what? I just... I mean, another term that I read in this Catholic Canadian bishops document was abrogated. So the the intercatera has already been abrogated and is without any legal or doctrinal va- value. Um so I'm just for the listener, like, you know, you're hearing these different terms such as, you know, uh, some Catholics saying, well, it's already been repudiated. And you hear the church, the bishop saying, well, this is abrogated. And then you're saying we need a revocation from the papacy. Um, can you uh, just, you know, just help us out with some of the, the different implications yeah, of I these mean, terms? Sure. Let's uh, take each of those one at a time. So repudiate means to reject. So they say, well, we we reject the doctrine of discovery. The uh, Vatican has said that. Then they also say, so they reject the doctrine of discovery. Well, do they reject the doctrine of domination? Hmm. Uh, We're still focused on discovery and not domination. When, when, and that's our fault because that's how we framed the, the issue initially because we were not really fully understanding all of these implications that we have gradually uh, come to realize over time, right? So, but they can say, okay, we reject the doctrine of discovery, but what are they really rejecting uh, when they say that? And, but the more important point to me uh, just to, before I go on to those other terms, is that the to repeat something I've already said, the Vatican has not publicly disclosed that the papacy, the Holy See, has not publicly disclosed the true nature of the information that was unleashed on the planet, or the, uh, the ideology, the way of thinking uh, in those Vatican papal bulls to invade capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and take away all their possessions and property. That's still moving across the planet at this time. It's moving in the destruction of the Amazon. It's moving in all of the decades of genocide against the peoples, the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, the genocide committed by the, um, you know, a kind of a coalition of the CIA evangelical church groups uh, and, and the Summer Institute of Linguistics and those kinds of, of uh, Christian organizations that are, are believing that they have to engage in evangelism among the uh, primitive, savage, uh, heathen, infidel peoples and and then you have the corporate interests uh, that are benefiting from all of the destruction and devastation. So this is world politics that we're talking about here. 
and the world economics and the justification, the underlying moral, moral and theological basis for all of that devastation and destruction. Now, it may sound strange to hear the word moral used in this context, but one of the things that people don't quite understand when it comes to morality and discussions of ethics and morality and that sort of thing. I, I took a course on ethics at, at the University of Oregon when I went there, and, um, and, and there was an idea that, you know, the thief, the thief doesn't have a moral framework. And they said, no, that's, that's incorrect. The thief has the moral framework of a thief. It's not that they don't have a moral framework. They have the kind of moral framework that enables them to justify what they do. Right. And when you apply, apply that to these documents, these documents are based on a very bizarre moral framework which believes that certain groups of people, and this goes back to the idea of the chosen people in the promised land, that the promised lands of the planet are all of the lands that are in the possession of the original nations and peoples or what most folks understand as indigenous nations and peoples and that they have the right to locate those lands and those peoples and to establish domination and help themselves to all the riches and wealth that accrue from that. And so with regard to the repudiation of the doctrine, that's all well and good, but that doesn't come to terms with anything. It just says, oh, yeah, we, re- we reject that. We reject that. Okay, that's it. We're done. We're done here. We don't have any further work to do. That's ridiculous because it doesn't come to terms with any of the devastating patterns that are ongoing today that have been interwoven into laws and policies and institutionalized by state and church systems. Because we have to remember that they, they have not discontinued their evangelizing. You know, Pope John Paul II referred to the new evangelization, the re-evangelization of all those uh, nations and peoples that are that were historically regarded as heathen and infidel and pagan. So there's the new evangelization that's still ongoing. And so why is that? You know, they're acting as if there's no problem. They're just going to continue with business as usual and change the names and treat everybody the same. And so, um, the, you know, the... I just think that the um, way in which this has been dealt with so far by the Catholic Church, as I already said, is not being directly uh, honest with the true nature of the language that the papacy issued. Mm-hmm. Now, going on to this idea of revocation, our idea was early on that when my friend Virgil Kilstraight and I began the Indigenous Law Institute, um, and Virgil was a traditional headman and ceremonial uh, man of the Oglala Lakota Nation and a dear friend and mentor for more than 25 years, uh, you know, with whom I worked on these issues. Um, but in any case, early on, we thought that it was best to call upon the Pope to formally overturn, to formally re- to formally um, revoke that document or the one document um, 
the May 4th Able Bowl. But then we realize that there's uh, a whole series of those documents. And as we got deeper and deeper into the language, then we realized there was much, much more to this story than we had initially understood. That's just the nature of knowledge. When you investigate any subject matter, you're going to get better over time and as far as your understanding of detail and nuance and particulars and so forth. So, hmm. yeah, I hope I, hope I, I kind of went all over the place on that <laughs> answer, but I hope I did address your, your uh, main points. There. So, I mean, would re- revocation... I mean, repudiation is to reject, but in a repudiation. Uh, re- repudiation is to reject. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it's it's basically saying, yeah, we reject that, but we're we don't have we don't bear responsibility in actually making right the damages that were done as a result of that. Is that? That's exactly yeah. correct. Yes. So w- would revocate yep. the, the, the act as if the act as if the, re- the repudiation. The only work to be done is to say, yeah, we we don't believe in that at all. That's that's that old stuff. We don't we don't go by that anymore, and uh, and that's the end of the story. So then they just go about their business, and and uh, there's no reckoning, there's no responsibility, there's no acknowledgement of the true nature of the historical record. It's deflect, deflect, deflect. So does revocation direct misdirect. Right. So does revocation implicate then more of that responsibility and and what does that look like? Well, I think you know? I, I think the revocation would be would be involve a full acknowledgement on the part of the Vatican that um, uh, that they issued that language to begin with over and over and over again and all of the destruction and devastation that that resulted in. And that's never been done in the whole the whole history of the church. It's never been done. John Paul II and um, Pope Francis. Uh, I don't know about so much about Benedict, but um, perhaps he too. But certainly, Pope John Paul II issued words of contrition in 2000 during the Jubilee year, and then. Um, uh, with the sins of the sons and daughters of the church and that sort of language, uh, generalistic statements, okay, um, not specifics. When he went to, when he went to, I think it was Santo Domingo in 1992, he gave an exhortation to the indigenous people's representatives, forgive those who have wronged you with no acknowledgement that one of those who have wronged you is the Catholic Church and the Holy See specifically by issuing those documents to begin with. Hmm. And so the, the burden is on them to forgive the Church for having done that, rather than the burden being on the Church to specifically and explicitly uh, acknowledge what they had actually done in terms of the language I'm talking about and the, what they unleashed on all of the original nations and peoples of the planet. Hmm. So that's hmm. that's just one example. But then Pope Francis has offered some uh, words of contrition in Bolivia hmm. and that sort of thing. But where's the historical record to show any pope that has ever acknowledged that 
my predecessor, they could, one of the popes could say, my predecessors in a series of documents over the course of nearly a century issued language stating that um, Christian monarchs should go forth to non-Christian lands and invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and take away all their possessions and property. And this resulted in a tremendous devastation and destruction for the original nations and peoples of the planet. Um, So I guess just to, uh, to expand on that, uh, a question I had was about um, like, what, what's your, what would be your uh, goal, Stephen? Like what, what would you like to see happen um, in a, I mean, you've kind of articulated the revocation and, and the statement that it'd be nice to see the 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 Vatican do, but I mean, have uh, have you like what's? <laughs> I mean, you've put so much time and energy into this, into educating people, and to um, you know helping people understand the implications of this. Um, what are you hoping comes out of this? Well, I think one of, one of the goals that I have is to highlight and emphasize the existence of the domination patterns across the planet that are afflicting uh, everyone at this point. And the connection between those patterns of domination and what the, what the Vatican unleashed on the planet all those centuries ago and we we need to come to terms with that and so my it's my contention that there's no such thing as a as a right of domination they can claim it all they want but it doesn't mean that we uh, would ever accept it or should ever accept it we don't accept that Um, and so we, we have to um, acknowledge that we have an original free and independent existence that's contrasted with that claim of a right of domination on their part. We have to look at the way, why has human society been organized to such an extent on the basis of domination and dehumanization across the planet? And who is explicitly speaking out against that in that manner? to call it domination and dehumanization and to call for an end to the patterns of domination and dehumanization across the planet. To my knowledge, I I don't really hear other thinkers or other scholars calling for that specific use of language where we can identify the way in which ecological systems are being destroyed on the basis of a claim of a right of domination. It's otherwise known as economic development, as it has been going on. But what's the basis of that so-called economic development? It's been the devastation and destruction of our lands and territories and of our our ecological systems that our ancestors nurtured and sustained for thousands and thousands of years 
then suddenly these systems of domination with a claim of a right of domination based on the Bible and Christianity and Vatican papables comes in on top of us and creates all kinds of devastation. And, uh, um, you know, on the basis of the idea of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Mm. Like that's, that's their moral framework. And I'm saying, no, we're going to call into, into question and challenge the entire basis and foundation of the world order based upon a, upon a claim of a right of domination. Look at the amount of, of, of money that goes into systems of destruction and devastation across this planet. If you were to take a category uh, and put it, you know, just take a category, examples of domination and dehumanization, and look at how much of the economic systems of the planet are based on that, how much of the, uh, all the, you know, the prison industrial complex, all these various ways in which human beings are manipulating other human beings on the basis of the claim of a right of domination. It's not set in stone that, that existence on planet Earth has to be organized in that manner. And we, as the original nations and peoples on the planet, that are the oldest nations and peoples on the planet, have a different orientation toward life. And, and I'm saying that there are other ways, other value systems that can be used uh, to organize human life, and that our ancestors did a very good job of, of organizing life in that way, based upon a different philosophical orientation toward uh, the beauty of life itself. Hmm. And there's a reason why the people that came into our territories saw paradise. They experienced paradise. Because every spiritual way of life that was existing here on this, uh, in this part of the planet, parts of the colonizers coming uh, over here, was based upon the idea that all life should be maintained and sustained forever, meaning in perpetuity. And that's based upon our teachings and our instructions. Hmm. So that's, that's my goal is very comprehensive in terms of saying, look, the planet has been in, in the grip of the madness of the Western mind for long enough. And the hmm. whole Western mind Every single political philosopher that you can read is all flipping back to domination. The whole thing of a political system is a system of domination and how that gets justified. Hmm. But pe most people don't realize that. Thanks for listening to Render Unto Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. This podcast is also available on eight different platforms in case you want to check it out there. Today's show features a fascinating conversation with author and indigenous scholar of law Stephen Newcomb. Stephen has been talking about the doctrine of discovery, or what he would call the doctrine of domination. Stay tuned as we talk about the importance of indigenous knowledge to a contemporary society that is in crisis. I also asked Stephen about what inspires him to continue the work that he does.
it reminds me of one quote I read from uh, your book. Uh, because of the way that indigenous nations and peoples have been ridiculed for centuries as primitive, savage, uncivilized, heathen, and pagan, could it be that the world has been deprived of a source of spiritual and cultural wisdom rooted in indigenous values, wisdom very much needed by the planet at this time? And yeah, I just, you know, you've, you've articulated that, uh, Stephen, just the, but I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to add to that, you know, what is that indigenous value and wisdom that's so desperately needed today? Well, I think as you continue on that same page of, of, in my book, Pagans in the Promised Land, I have a quote from Gregory Schaaf, uh, talking about our Lenape worldview traditionally, uh, which he says um, enabled the people to live, or this is my worst, live a spiritual life of liberty. And then he states it this way, Lenape philosophy was an ancient form of democracy. Traditional Lenape recognized not only the rights of all men, but those of all women. They also believed human beings should respect life, animals, plants, and even tiny insects because all had been made by the Creator for a purpose. According to the Lenape, the mountains, the rivers, the earth, and the heavens above were created in harmony for a divine purpose. They viewed the entire universe as alive with spiritual power. And um, so the the um, idea of political freedom um, uh, actually, I think it's more along the lines of spiritual, um, spiritual liberty, a, a spiritual way of life. Liberty and and freedom in the Western sense is kind of like the little, uh, I don't know, if it's called the clapper or something. The the what moves back and forth inside the space of the bell. So that metal object that swings back and forth that rings the bell that's considered to represent the individual within the limits of the domination system under the dome. And above the dome is the yoke, and the bell is attached to the yoke. So the bell is su, meaning under, and jugati, it's yoke. Jugati is to yoke. So sub-jugati is to subjugate. And that individual swinging back and forth within the limits of the dome is within a framework and context of domination or subjugation. That's their form of liberty. Let let freedom ring is the idea that the state has the liberty and independence, but not the people. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ours, it's that not only the people, but all forms of life have a, a, a specific purpose and meaning. And that uh, our goal and our uh, charge as humans is to take uh, to uh, sustain and maintain all life in perpetuity, as I already stated. Yeah. So um, it's a different philosophical orientation entirely, uh, not premised upon claiming a right of domination over others. Yeah, I just have two more things here. Uh, I hope that's okay. If uh, just, sure. okay, thank you. Uh, why, why is this so important to you, 
Steve, this, I, I know you've touched on it a bit, but like, why have you devoted so many, so much, so many years to this work? Because my uh, rage and anger are monumental. Hmm. That my sense of outrage, my sense of of anger, knowing what has happened, is is something that I've really had to deal with my entire life since I was a young person. And the way in which I channeled that was in, in this work and, and spiritual work. So um, it's, it's something that I feel that unless I, as one particular person, remember our ancestors and remember all of those uh, ancestors across the planet that were destroyed by what was unleashed by the Vatican uh, and these other institutions of domination uh, that that we can point to, then who's going to do that? Hmm. Who's going to who's going to take the time to to acknowledge and remember them? And we have to unearth and uh, excavate the true nature of the historical record so that we can understand what that has to teach us. And so that. You know, it's really been part of my personal effort to deal with my own healing and my own spiritual path. Hmm. And um, and it might sound at times as if I'm, <clears throat> you know, um, consumed by that anger, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I come across that way most of the time. <laughs> but um, yeah. but I do. But I do really have that. And um but I, but it's super, I mean, just tremendously important that I not behave in a way that then harms others or creates uh, a repeat of the same patterns. So that's part of the healing process. And my daughter, Shauna, Blue Star Newcomb, she's doing a tremendous job of, um, uh, of articulating a lot of these ideas from a feminine perspective from a woman's perspective and hmm. she has a very healing way about her that's very useful in this work as well and then my other friends peter jerico a legal legal studies professor at university of massachusetts for more than 30 years who is now retired i've been having a conversation with him for the past 30 years about this information and then joe day joe day gowdy of the Akama Nation, uh, who has done a tremendous amount of work on the doctrine during the time that he was chairman there at the Yakima Nation, and we're, we're doing work together on a platform that he calls redthought.org, and um, it's, it, we're, we've been having a lot of these conversations on Zoom and, and recording them and making them available to folks, so hmm. uh, we have a lot of work to do. We will continue on. And as long as I have breath to breathe and a life force in my body, I will continue on with this work because that's the the, uh, the commitment that I made spiritually uh, many decades ago. Hmm. Stephen, you talked about like the rage, and um, I, I'm just curious, you know, if you could talk a little bit about your own background, and you know, is does that does where you're situated and, and, you know, 
just your your own personal background um i'm sure that has something to do with this work that you're invested in could you tell us a little bit about that <laughs> well i'll say this that my grandpa bushhead spy buck newcomb ended up at haskell boarding school and his father solomon newcomb ended up at haskell boarding school that was uh, very well uh solomon newcomb my great-grandfather was ended up there at haskell in the late 1800s and um bush newcomb my grandpa ended up there in the, from 190, what would it be, 1905 to about 1914 or 15. And um, so our, our family, uh, we do have, you know, the legacy of the boarding schools, so-called boarding schools. Um, I always say that because the word school makes it sound like, well, they just attended school. Um, <clears throat> but anyway so we have that in our family background and i was very um upset because we were cut off uh, upset early in my life because we were cut off from our language uh, our shawnee and delaware language um and 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 we, you know i really never learned anything growing up about our culture or uh, our language or anything and uh, other than my grandparents being kind of my daycare, uh, my grandma Bessie, my grandpa Bush, but my grandma Bessie being kind of my daycare uh, early in, you know, I was just a baby and uh, toddler. Um, you know, the, uh, never really had that connection. So that that was something I was really upset about, and just a lot of a lot of things that that families go through. And I was so fortunate when I was a teenager to be able to go into ceremony with uh, uh, Wayne Roan and from the Cree Nation and and other elders from his community, from Chief Small Chief Small Boys Community, uh, and and so that changed my life. I mean, to be able to go into ceremony at that young age and to realize that that spiritual dimension still exists. Um, was tremendous for me and because I had always been an avid reader uh, I just put dedicated my energy the anger and so forth that I had into um, like I say you know my spiritual path and, and this academic path of trying to understand the true nature of the history and what really happened to our nations and peoples so it's been a you know, as much as I've said something about my anger, I I have that somewhere down there. Um, it doesn't go away, but it's been transmuted in a very significant sense. So I don't come from that place uh, in terms of how I interact with others. In fact, I I think I strive to interact with others in a in a respectful way because that's part of our teachings. But that doesn't prevent me from um, really coming to terms with everything that we've been talking about here today and attempting to deal with that in a more in-depth and profound manner. Yeah. Do you suspect, Stephen, you mentioned boarding schools down there, and I know I have a friend of mine who uh, he works for Politico in D.C., and uh, he contacted me because he wanted to talk with 
my friend who is from Kawasis First Nation and, you know, where those 751 unmarked graves were found recently here in Saskatchewan. Um, and it was interesting. He asked, he said, I, I want to do a story on that, but I suspect that there's a lot of similar, uh, there's a similar situations in the States. And what he said was interesting is that, you know, a lot of U.S. Uh, international media was covering these, these grave sites in Canada. Um, and not a lot of talk about, was there the same situation hap- happening in the United States, you know? Right. Well, I was at the um, Sherman Indian School Cemetery just a couple of weeks ago, and there are 70 unmarked graves in that cemetery. And uh, by that, I mean there's a fence around it. There's uh, uh, on that fence is uh, what it's Sherman Indian School Cemetery uh, signage. And then, uh, but there's not one individualized headstone for any child. Yeah. There's a large headstone for all of the children, and their names are on that large headstone. But you'd be hard-pressed to know where any of those individual uh, grave sites are for any one child, right? Because there's no headstone. So how would you know? And, um, and that was very strange to me, sitting in that cemetery. Uh, uh, just it, it was very impacting on me uh, hmm. in a in a profound way and then then my friend uh george mcauliffe and i were talking and and uh, turns out there were something on the order of 350 of those boarding schools uh so-called schools in the u.s and uh if you had a comparable death rate of 70 or thereabouts you know you're you're looking at over 20,000 children that died right. uh, perhaps in those schools. I mean, we don't know what the real number is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it, but it isn't just that. It's all of the suffering and, and torment that all of those children went through in, in those schools. But it wasn't just here. You know, you, there, there was a posting recently of Mapuche children in Chile undergoing the same process um and and you i have uh, been to australia and talked to aboriginal people and talking about the same situation there and it was it was really amazing to be on the other side of the world and and uh, have the exact same stories so to speak uh told about what happened to their people so it's the same system. The dom- domination and dehumanization is the point that I'm making here, right? Yeah. But yeah, it needs much more attention and focus. But the but the hopefully as a way of illustrating the true nature of the system. And I guess I do have to say before I before we end this uh, this uh, conversation, this interview, that the remains of all those children and unmarked graves reveals that the whole concept of reconciliation is based on a uh, misframing of the historical record. In other words, there was no beneficial relationship that fell apart that needs to be put back together and reconciled. There's not a basis for reconciliation 
because there's not a basis uh, of a positive relationship that was previously existing. Right. And I think that that's such an important point. And, and it is interesting that the reconciliation concept is actually in keeping with the concept in Christianity of reconciliation and uh, specifically of the Catholic Church and its idea of reconciliation. So I feel that that's uh, something that that is not helpful, actually, and that's uh, a misdirection. Hmm. We need to come to terms with the true nature of what that so-called relationship is. Do you call it a relationship if it's uh, uh, people coming in on top of other people and establishing domination over them and on top of them? Uh, I guess you can call it some kind of a relationship, but but it's the relationship you want to use that word of a dominator and the dominated, just as Max Weber said with regard to the state. Right? So there's much more to this. It's uh, not mm-hmm. a simple issue. It requires a lot of detail and nuance and a lot of patience, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to do it all in one fell sweep, swoop. It's going to be a long-term process, and hopefully the goal is uh, how to come to a place of of respectful communication uh, but at the same time um, being accurate with the historical record and the true nature of the systems that are ongoing at this time and the continuing continuing devastation and destruction Listening to Render Under Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. I'm your host, Josh Campbell. Today we heard from Indigenous scholar of law Stephen Newcomb about the doctrine of discovery. One thing that stood out to me was Stephen's point about reconciliation. As a high school teacher, I hear a lot about this. It's almost become a buzzword in progressive circles. And just this year, the Canadian government implemented a new federal holiday called the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation held on September 30th. Unfortunately, our Prime Minister missed the memo, but that's another story. The reason Stephen's point stood out to me is I never thought about the fact that there isn't really a good relationship to restore. It has been lopsided from the start. So even the use of the word, if I'm understanding Stephen correctly, is an imposition of Western domination in a sense. It's like we settlers are saying, hey, Let's work on restoring our mutually beneficial relationship, even though it never existed in the first place. The original relationship is much better depicted by the Iron Maiden song I have playing in the background. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to search up the lyrics. I'd love to interject here with a little rant on how heavy metal music is the most intelligent music out there, but again, that's another story. When the musical interlude ends, I have a special announcement about the show. 
This announcement will be followed by an intro to the next episode which features a fascinating conversation between Stephen Newcomb and Catholic Archbishop Don Bolin. Please stay tuned and thanks for listening. The release of this episode marks one year since I started this podcast, and I find the timing of its release interesting, given that it is Canadian Thanksgiving this coming Monday, October 11th. Looking back at the intro to my first podcast with Michael Corrin, I wrote an introduction about myself and why I was beginning this podcast. Here's part of what I said. This is a very personal podcast. I come from Caroline, Alberta, and am the proud product of prairie Christian conservatism, though I'm not always proud of it. My grandpa on my dad's side was a progressive conservative MLA for two terms. My other great-grandpa on my mum's side was a big promoter and campaigner for the Social Credit Party under William Eberhardt. Eberhardt was the guy who ran a daily Bible show in addition to being a premier. In my younger years, I followed a very fundamentalist interpretation of Christianity. My literal reading of the Bible convinced me that I knew the truth and that sharing it and defending it was my life's mission. Then, through a series of events, my religious views began to change, which in turn led to a shift in my politics. This shift in religious and political beliefs is something that fascinates me, and I want to explore it through this show. And I continue. Last month was Thanksgiving, a time when many of us connect and share a meal together. I don't have family in Saskatchewan, so often my wife, kids, and I join my in-laws for the occasion. My mother and father-in-law are gracious hosts, and we've been on the receiving end of many good meals at their place. We usually like to keep things on the surface level given the fact that even though we're both Christians, we sit on opposite ends of the political spectrum. It has often been said that religion and politics are two things that you don't talk about at the dinner table. While I get this, At the same time, I kind of don't. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, I learned about some of the dark history behind the holiday. When I was in school, I remember seeing pictures of settlers and natives sitting together in brotherly communion. I never knew about the other story, that Thanksgiving was a day prescribed by the early American government to celebrate various massacres of indigenous people. As much as I really wanted to bring this up at our dinner table that year, I didn't. I guess this show is a means of reparation for those moments and many others in my life when I didn't say what I needed to say. It's a way for me to defy the old maxim and get people talking about religion and politics. I regret to say that this next topic of the Doctrine of Discovery will likely be the last of the Render Unto Caesar podcast. Because of other commitments, I cannot continue this volunteer-run show. I've learned so much from the various guests that I've interviewed this past year, and I'm grateful for the time they have given. I'm also extremely grateful to 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio for graciously hosting this podcast. And I'm also thankful to you, the listener. Thank you for the time that you have given to my show. I can honestly say that I would have done this show even if no one listened because of all the things that I learned. Having a podcast show is more of a way to trick interesting people into talking with me than anything, but I digress.
In the season finale of Render Unto Caesar, I will be moderating a fascinating conversation between Stephen Newcomb and Roman Catholic Archbishop Don Bolin. In these two episodes, Mr. Newcomb and Archbishop Bolin discuss the recent Catholic response to the doctrine of discovery. In 2016, Archbishop Bolin was the chair of a Catholic commission that drafted the response. Mr. Newcomb takes the opportunity to ask Archbishop Bolin some questions that he has. He also takes the time to offer his knowledge and perspective on the topic. All this and more next time on Render Unto Caesar.